But we're going through the book of Revelation, and we said that it was written to the first century church who were struggling with persecution. They were struggling with uh, temptations in the church to compromise. And so Jesus gives John this encouraging word. In it, though, is a series of judgments. And we've been in chapters 4 through 16. We're almost done this vision of judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. Now, as Pastor John reminded us last week, he said the seven bowls are probably telling the cycle of God's judgment throughout history, but there's an intensity at the end. In fact, if you remember back in 16.1, he says, go out and pour the seven bowls of the wrath of God to the earth. And then later he says, because in it the wrath of God is finished. So whatever these seven bowls are, they both represent God's judgment in history, but particularly an intensified judgment at the end. Now, if you were here last week, and if not, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor John's message. Um, he focused on the wrath of God, and if you remember, he said, God avenges injustice done to his people, right? They said, God, you gave them blood to drink because they spilled our blood. God ensures that the punishment fits the crime, and also we were reminded that God proves that people who receive God's judgment, they deserve it. Remember, they were, they were shaking their fist. So, but the encouraging thing is you ended with communion, right? You ended with the idea of how can I escape God's wrath? And the Bible tells us that Christ absorbed God's wrath so we could be forgiven. So John covered the first five bowls. I'm going to cover the last two bowls. So we're in chapter 16, verses 12 through 21. We're just going to look at the final two bowls. And then next week, we'll look at chapter 17 and 18, which is a, a retelling of the destruction of the world system. So let's look at the first bowl in chapter 12 through 16. Now, before we read this, I wanna, want you to think about something. How many movies are about some sort of invaders coming from space to get us? Either it's an, a group of aliens or meteors or some outside force coming to get us and, and destroy us and wipe out the earth. How many movies do we have about this great cataclysmic event at the end? But the irony is in almost all those movies, the bad guys are coming from outside and the good guys are the people on earth. When in fact, what the Bible teaches, and I'm wondering if perhaps this idea implanted in human minds is actually simply something that has been preached from the beginning, and that is that God is coming back. But there will be a great resistance against him. Against him. The Bible says that Enoch lived seven generations from Adam, and yet he preached of the coming of the Lord to destroy the ungodly. What we're going to learn this morning is that man has flipped this around. Here we are, the good guys, and if anybody comes to get us, why I ought to. What we're going to read in this passage is that it's going to be the opposite. The Lord is going to come back, and the bad guys, humanity, is going to rise up in rebellion to fight him. So let's look, and we'll talk about this sixth bowl. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And coming out of the mouth of the dragon 
and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon, or Armageddon. What? The battle of Armageddon. Well, here it is. What I want to focus on to begin with is the phrase in verse 14, the war of the great day of God the Almighty. What is that talking about? There have been many wars in history, but this is one final war. This is the war of all wars. This is the ultimate fight, the showdown, the battle of God versus man. And notice it is called a war. Now, interestingly, the Bible has been talking about this since the Old Testament times. All the way back in the book of Zechariah in chapter 14, let me just read to you how Zechariah predicted and prophesied. If you want to turn there, but you don't have to, those of you that are familiar with the Bible, right near the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah 14, God says in verses 1 and 2, a day is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. I will gather all nations to Jerusalem to battle, and then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. So what is this battle? This is a great cos or cosmic return of Christ in which in conglomeration with all the nations, they come together, literally knowing that God is coming back and preparing themselves into thinking that they can beat God. It's alluded to several other places. For example, we're going to learn more about it in chapter 19. Listen to, let me just read briefly though. You're familiar with chapter 19, which describes the second coming of Christ. But this is what it says. It says in chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out, come assemble for the great supper of God in order to meet, eat the flesh of the kings and commanders of the earth. But listen to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So the world is assembled to fight against God. In chapter 20, this particular event, some have taken to be a different war, but it very well could be the same war. It says, verse 9, they came up in the broad plain of the earth, they surrounded the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So over and over again, there's this prediction of this great war. Who's it going to be? Well, notice that if you go back, it says, the great river Euphrates is dried up. Now, we talked about those who see this as a futuristic, literal interpretation. And so it is possible that this is literal, that the Euphrates will dry up. But I don't think that's the meaning. In fact, if you, if you go back to chapter 9 in verse 14, there we saw a similar thing. It said, release the four angels who are bound at the great river, the Euphrates. 
So the Euphrates in Scripture literally was dried up at the fall of Babylon. Babylon, this great kingdom, had a river, the Euphrates, that ran through it. And the only place that um, you could get into Babylon, there, the wall was open for the river. So the Persians diverted the Euphrates River, dried it up, and were able to come under the walls and get into Babylon and, and sack Babylon. So I think what God is, is doing here is he's using the drying up of the Euphrates as a metaphor, not because there's literally any necessity to gather that river. For example, the kings of the whole earth are going to gather. Why would the Euphrates need to be dried up for the kings of the whole earth to gather? There's a lot of them that are east and west of the Euphrates. So I don't think this is literal. I think it's the idea that God is preparing for this last day's battle. So let's, let's talk about this location, where. It says, they gathered them together in the place which is in Hebrew called Harmageddon. In northern Israel, about a two-day walk from Jerusalem, maybe more than two days, is a place called the Plains of Megiddo. It's famous in the Old Testament because there were some great battles fought there. Joshua won a battle there. Josiah the king was killed there. But interestingly, there is no mountain there. There's no references in the Bible to Mount Megiddo. But here, the, the, the Greek word har is mountain. Har Megiddon means the mountain of Megiddo. So the question is, is this literally where there will be a great battle? It's possible. In fact, one British general said this will be the, gr the greatest place for the battle, for, for a, an end times battle. But the irony is, most of the time when it mentions the end time battle, it says it's going to be at Jerusalem. The Lord will come down and he will land on, 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 on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. So I don't know that we have to take this as literally in the Valley of Megiddo, but it's going to be in the Holy Land. The, the final battle of history will be the nations of the earth, which would include probably Russia, Gog and Magog, that we'll read about in the future when we come to chapter 20. But all of the, 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 the nations of the earth will come around Jerusalem to fight against God as he returns. Now, we're not going to cover all of that this morning because we're going to see it again in chapter 19, and we're going to see it again in chapter 20. But one of the questions is, how? How is the war of the great day of God the Almighty going to happen? Well, when did man first begin in an in a organized fashion to rebel against God? Tower of Babel. God told him, spread out. And all the way back in Genesis 9, at the Tower of Babel, humanity gathered together in rebellion against God and attempted to build a tower up to heaven in direct defiance of God. And so Babel became the, the, the metaphorical picture of mankind's rebellion against God. But that continued throughout Scripture. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations of the world rage the kings of this earth, in their vain imaginations, they said, we will not have this man, God's Messiah, rule over us. So the idea of mankind being corporately gathered against God is not a new subject. 
Interestingly, how did this, does this happen? Number one, individually, our hearts are wired that way because of sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that every person who's not a Christian has a mindset on the flesh, and the mindset on the flesh is in opposition to God. It is hostile to God. It doesn't mean we shake our fist and want to punch God in the face. It just means God ain't telling me what to do. And so it's not hard to imagine that if individually our hearts are programmed to be in opposition to God, that one day mankind will gather together in opposition to God. But what we learn here is that the primary source of this is demonic. Look what it says. It says, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, those three enemies of God. Remember we said the dragon is the devil, the beast is organized government, and the false prophet is organized religion, right? So these, these three, the, the, the triumphant or the false trinity, are going to do what? They're going to send out three unclean spirits like frogs, which he says are the spirits of demons. Now, interestingly, frogs in Scripture are used by God's judgment in the Exodus. They're an unclean animal, and they were often associated with demons. In fact, Josephus called them slimy, horrible, uh, no, he called them horrible, bad slime, their slimy, grotesque appearance. And so these demonic beings, now think about this. God says, I'll send out these demonic beings and they'll gather them together for the war. How's that going to happen? Well, let's not forget that the Bible says this entire universe is ruled, or this entire world is ruled by Satan. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And so this, this angel pours out his bowl on the air and suddenly these demons are moved by God to go out and deceive the nations. Now, it was interesting to me because this is not the first time this happened. Back in 1 Kings, the Lord wanted to bring judgment upon several nations. And so this is 1 Kings 22. Listen to this passage. It's stunning. The Lord said, who will I send to deceive him? Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of the prophets. Then he said, then go and do so. Now, therefore, the Lord put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So think about the subtlety. We watch what's happening on planet Earth. We watch what's happening among the nations. Let's not forget that these are ultimately puppets in the hand of God. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as a river of water, Proverbs says, he turns it wherever he wishes. And so these people are literally going to deceive themselves into believing that they have the weapons and the, and the acumen to beat God in a fight. I don't know what the wages will be in Las Vegas, but I'm putting all my money on God. Amen? So he doesn't tell us all about that battle at this point. He simply tells us that it's going to happen. Now, the interesting thing is, at least I ought to note here something that I learn about God. If I'm a Christian, relax. When you watch the news, remember, the Lord is in control. 
when you sit there and go, how could these nations and how could these people believe something so stupid? Remember, the demons are deceiving. All right? So, with that in mind, Jesus bursts out with a personal application. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. This is to the first century church. And then he says, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And this is one of the reasons why I go, how could this book be only for the future? How could the first century Christians not have said, this is to me? So we're going to come back to that because that to me is the application. But let's look at the final bowl. So, so, the, so, the, so the sixth bowl then is the gathering together for this final battle. And we're going to learn what happens when the Lord comes back. But the final bowl is a part of how the story ends. A part. Frequently in the book of Revelation, John's going to tell us this is what's going to happen at the return of the Lord. But then he'll show us something different. So what is he going to show us here about how the story ends? This isn't everything. This doesn't include the return of Jesus. But it does tell us several things that are new. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl on the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Or maybe, it is done. And I'm going to assume that's God speaking. Just let that sink in. What? What's done? And there were flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts. Wait, what great city? And the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. Now, let me remind you that a bowling ball weighs between 12 and 16 pounds. So what would a 100-pound hailstone look like? And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So what do we learn about the end? Well, let's start with this phrase, it is done. It is done. Well, what is done? This is a reminder that history is not unfolding in this random way, but it's hurtling extremely purposefully according to God's program. Day by day, the Bible tells us God is accomplishing the purpose of his will, both on a micro and macro level. And his ultimate will is to bring glory to himself. He has made all things for him, through him, to him. But as he's unfolding his plan, several times in the book of Revelation, we'll see this hint. For example, if you remember back in chapter 10, it says, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. The mystery of God is finished. God's program of calling out his elect people. In 21.6, I want you to turn to 21.6. We learn in chapter 21 that God is going to create, in verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 5, 
I'm making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I just saw a meme, something along the lines that said this, if you know the Alpha and the Omega, you don't have to be quite as concerned about the Delta. Now, I don't make light of the necessity of caution, but if you know the Alpha and the Omega, you don't have to have the same perspective of the Delta. But notice, it is done. You know, what struck me is, in the past, when Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? It's finished. The wrath of God is absorbed. Here we read that in this, this last day's event, when, when God begins to return, he says, it's done. And then he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and he says, it's done. Past, present, and future. God is in control, and I can take comfort and encouragement from that. But then let's dig into this idea of this great city. What in the world is this talking about? It says, the great city was split into three parts. Now, as I went through the book of Revelation, I've come to the conclusion that the great city is a reference to Babylon. Not everyone sees that. Some say it's Jerusalem. Some say it's Rome. But at least six times in Revelation, for example... Go back to chapter 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second one, said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And so throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to read about Babylon the Great. Chapter 17, verse 18 says, The woman you saw is the great city. In chapter 18, it says, Fallen is Babylon the Great. But finally, in 1810, it says, Woe to the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Revelation 18, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence. Now you're like, Pastor Tom, can you spend the next 45 minutes explaining that? Yes. Next week. Because John's going to loop around in 17 and 18 and discuss the destruction of Babylon. But let me just say this that my suggestion here is that Babylon, while some would say it's just in, in the last days, literally Babylon over in Iraq is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be the great world power. My suggestion is that Babylon is simply a term that represents the world system. That's how Jewish people saw it in the Old Testament. So in essence, think of Babylon as synonymous with the world. God doesn't hate globes. He doesn't hate planets, but he hates the world. The Bible says, do not love the world. This is the Apostle John. Nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. We're told as Christians, he that becomes a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The Bible tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world. And so I have to be reminded that I live among a culture of people who are disconnected from God. They're not all axe murderers. They're just disconnected from God. And worldliness is not whether you have a, a piercing in your, in your lip or you have a tattoo on your arm. Worldliness 
is when you leave God out of your life. And there's a whole lot more worldliness than the street people that are shooting heroin down under the bridge in Kensington. There's plenty of worldliness everywhere we look in American culture. And so the book of James says, you want to know what poor relig pure religion is? He says, visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unstained from this world. Somehow we as Christians are taught that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. That the goal of life is not to have pleasure and get the most toys and see what we can do to get to the top of life. But the very essence of what it means to be a Christian is to turn my back on this world system and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, and these two systems are in great contrast. And we need to learn how to think critically using the Bible and not be absorbed with the counsel of the ungodly. And so what we have here is a celebration of the destruction of the world system. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So read ahead in 17 and 18, and, and, and look at that, and let's talk about how God is going to destroy this world system. He's going, to, he's going to bring down all the empires and enemies that have resisted him. But let's close with some thoughts here as, as we finish out this series of judgments. Since, since we're running out of time, I want to jump to some applications here that we can think about. Go back to verse 15. You're a first century Christian. You're in Asia Minor. All around you, you're being told, worship the emperor. It's okay to bow down to these idols. You can follow Jesus, just bow down to these idols. Oh, and by the way, I know you're a Christian, but listen, we have the teachings of Jezebel. We have the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Let's not get too, too old-fashioned. Let's get not, not quite so stringent about that sexual stuff. Come on. Everybody needs to be able to have a little fun. Go on up to the temple. Have a prostitute. It's okay to, to have same-sex relationships. It was happening in the first century, and it's happening today. And so when, when, when John is telling these first-century Christians, I'm coming like a thief. Jesus says that from the beginning. Now, now think about this. Thieves do not send you a text, I'll be there at midnight. I never understood this till my house got robbed. I always understand... You know, Jesus says, don't lay up your treasures in heaven where thieves break in and steal. When I went to seminary, we lived in, in a very dangerous neighborhood. Ten apartments that, that my wife and I managed, 12 apartment units, 10 of them got robbed. God put the angels of God around our apartment, never got robbed. Then I moved to the nice suburbs of Yardley to be a pastor, and I get robbed. They took everything. <laughs> One of them pillowcase things where they take your... They even took my telephone. Come on, buy your own phone. Everything. I didn't know they were coming. Jesus says, I come like a thief. And so back then, as well as today, I need to understand that Jesus is coming, and I need to be ready. Well, what, is he, what does he tell me to do? Stay awake and keep your garments. How many movies do you see when the house is on fire, somebody's breaking in, people are putting their clothes on and running out the door. If you knew a thief was coming, you'd be waiting with your shotgun fully dressed. If I know the Lord is coming, what does he mean by keeping your garments? 
Well, I just want to suggest one thing about garments that we're going to read about later. We're going to read in chapter 21 that, that garments, or I'm sorry, in, in chapter 20, that garments represent our good deeds. In chapter 19, it says that the garments are the righteous acts of the saints. It's, it's, our, it's our work for Christ. It's our living for Christ. So when he says here, lest you be caught without your garments, are you living for Christ? If you're not living your life for Christ, you ain't dressed properly. If there's sin in your life, you need to get your robe back on. If you're not resting in the finished work of Christ, the garment of his righteousness, you're not ready for his return. Thankfully, you don't need to shout it out. Jesus will wash our stains away. But think about the significance living in this time. What does it look like to keep my garments lest men walk about naked and men see his shame? Did you know there's actually a verse in the Bible in 1 John 2 that says, Beloved, let us abide in Christ, which means to trust him and obey him, so that when he comes back, I will have confidence. Now, he's talking to Christians, beloved, children. Abide in Christ. So when he comes back, you may have confidence. And then he says this, and not shrink away in shame at his coming. Did any of you ever have your parents come home when you weren't thinking they were going to come home? You get it? And so Jesus is inviting us as believers to reorient our values, to remember what's coming and why we're here, and to live for his glory. You say, Pastor, that makes me feel guilty. Me too. But the Lord only makes us feel guilty in a desire to bring us to spiritual growth, a desire to say, all right, well, then I need to wake up. I need to pray more. I need to be more serious. Spend a little less time on, on the computer and on the television. The Bible says, the end of all things is at hand. Be of sound mind and sober judgment for the purpose of prayer. I don't want you to leave discouraged. I want to be encouraged. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And why waste another day? And let's be in prayer that God's going to do great things before he comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much that you're in control of this world and we don't have to wonder what's going to happen. You're going to gather the nations together and they're going to fight against you and you're going to win. But we as your children live in a hostile world, a world that is controlled by Satan, a world whose thought process is in opposition to God. So help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of the gospel what it means to be different, what it means to go and make disciples. Thank you for Annie's willingness to go to Jordan to make disciples. Help us to be willing to go to our workplace, to go to our neighbors, to go to our family, to make disciples. Please forgive us, Lord, for loving this world, for being stained by the sins of this world. Cleanse us this morning so that we can walk out of here clothed and waiting for your return. 
excited about the coming of Christ, when you will make a new heavens and a new earth, and it is done. But help us to persevere until then. And while every head is bowed and eye is closed, if, if you have never made a decision to come to Jesus and to be forgiven of all your sins, please just don't look around. Just between you and the Lord, if you want to follow Jesus, right now just tell him, Lord, I do believe that you died on the cross for all of my sins. I do believe that you rose from the dead. I do want to trust you. I do want to be forgiven. I do want to follow you. If you've made that decision this morning, I'd like to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you, ask you to come forward or anything. I'd like to pray for you and at some point maybe talk to you. If you'd like to talk more about this, would you just raise your hand and look up at me? I'm not going to ask you to come forward or anything, but if you'd say, Pastor Tom, would you pray for me? Anybody at all? Amen. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Amen. Yes. Four people have raised their hand. Father, I pray for these people who raise their hand. We know that raising your hand doesn't make you a Christian, but we do believe that um, Jesus said, those who seek me will find me, and all who come to me I will not cast out. So help these four people, Lord, to... Um, Matt, to get connected. I hope that they'll come and talk to me and I can connect them so that someone could truly ground them in the things of God. For the rest of us, Lord, we rejoice that Jesus is coming again and all that is wrong in this world will be made right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Be sure to read Revelation 17 for next week.